Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 7, Darren Strange, Memory Errors in Alibi Generation. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Darren Strange. Darren is an associate professor of psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. Darren's research focuses on memory distortion and its legal implications. Darren's recent article is entitled Memory Errors in Alibi Generation, How an Alibi Can Turn Against Us, and is co-authored with William Crozier and Beth Loftus. In it, she and her co-authors discuss the police practice of obtaining alibis and how errors in alibis can occur innocently but have a detrimental impact on a defendant's case. Darren, thanks for being on Excited Utterance. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the article, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into this area of the psychology of memory and what got you interested in its implications for the legal system probably the usual story. My favorite professor when I was an undergrad was my memory professor and she was doing research in psychology and the law and that intersection really of how theory can apply to something that has value in everybody's lives. I found really compelling and having the ability to do research where you could actually see it having an impact in the world was pretty compelling for me. Let's talk about alibis, which of course are part and parcel of any criminal investigation. How does a witness form an alibi, psychologically speaking, and how can those alibis go awry even though a person is innocent? Well, that's a big question. At its most basic level, the thing that we have to understand is that a being asked to generate an alibi is really a memory test. And our memories are terrible. Our memory is not set up as a kind of tape recorder system where we encode every aspect of the minutiae that happens in our lives. It's not a tape recorder. We can't go back and find the appropriate event just because we're asked to. Instead, our memories are incredibly malleable and incredibly fallible. And that means that when we're asked by the police, typically, where we were and what we were doing at a particular moment in time, unless we were actually committing a crime or actually doing something really significant, the chances that we're going to be able to produce that information are slim to none. So the problem is that if it's a mundane task, we simply ignore it or we think that it's of low value and the memory simply doesn't pick it up? Yeah, essentially. Our memory is capacity limited. That is, it's not like we can encode everything that happens to us. And if we don't encode it, we can't retrieve it. And even if we do encode some details, they might get corrupted over time by things that we learn afterwards. So we're just not going to encode the minutiae, the kinds of things that we do on a regular basis. We might be able to answer in general terms, what were you doing at 1pm on Thursday the 12th? Well, I was probably at work. That probably is the significant thing because it might not be the case, but because that's the typical fact for us, that's what we'll generate. And then if that's not true, 
An inconsistency in an alibi is a significant problem, not just for the person at the time that they're providing that answer, but it has cascading effects throughout an entire investigation and ultimately trial. Let me back up a little bit. In an earlier article, you, along with Jennifer Dysert and Beth Loftus, conducted a set of experiments where you demonstrated exactly this phenomenon that you're talking about, that people generally have trouble recalling these past mundane events. Can you tell us a little bit more about those experiments? And I know that it's a pretty involved experiment that you did, so just in general terms, what did you do and what did you find? I'm sure I can try and keep it simple. What we did was we had a bunch of college students, around 80 of them, and we asked them out of nowhere to write down, they were in a class, write down what they were doing, where they were, who they were with, what happened before and what happened after for a six hour time period three weeks earlier. And then you can imagine that they didn't particularly like this task. In fact, there was a lot of blank looks. They went through all of these details and they went through a step-by-step process. And then they had to rate how confident they were and a bunch of other kinds of little characteristics. And once they'd completed that task, we then asked them to go away and prove it. They had a week to generate evidence to support their alibi. They ultimately knew that they were going to have to come back into class and produce that alibi again and the evidence to support it. This, of course, is very similar to what police are asking suspects to do. You have a suspect and you ask them out of the blue, what did they do two weeks or three weeks ago? The person really doesn't have a clue and then they have to substantiate that because that's what the police are going to want. Absolutely. So it's obviously slightly more contrived than that. And at worst, the students could have thought that they were going to fail this task and disappoint me as their professor. But it didn't have criminal outcomes for them. So the stress level here is is an extra issue. Our students were not stressed. Still, they were terrible at the task. What we found was that when they came back at time two, so the second time we asked these questions, the amount of detail they could offer about where they were and what they were doing had essentially halved. So we can assume that what they had written down was either wrong or they couldn't prove it and decided not to offer that detail again. And so that really means that there was a huge lack of consistency between the two reports. And that's important because police, prosecutors, and jurors consider consistency in an alibi to be the most critical thing beyond anything else. But when we then looked at the kinds of things that people would be most likely to get wrong, the timing was the worst. So people were just often frequently wrong about what they were doing at a particular time. They might be right that they did that at a particular time that day, but we asked them to specify the exact timing, which is critical in a police investigation. And it turns out that's the worst way to ask people for information about what they were doing. There are a couple of other things that your articles have talked about in this vein. A lot of members of the general public and thus a lot of prospective jurors, think that you have a high-stakes type situation, therefore you're going to have a more consistent alibi. I don't believe your student study covers that situation, but as I recall, there are other studies that suggest that's not necessarily true. No, it's not at all. 
again, the most critical thing here is that the way memory works doesn't change. And when you're asked in a high stakes situation what you were doing, the only way that that can actually be improved is if, if you were actually doing something that was critical. So just because the police are asking isn't going to improve your accuracy. Only if you were actually committing the crime or doing something significant are you going to be accurate in recalling those details. And we know this from all sorts of different kinds of memory studies, not just alibi work. So we know that people are frequently wrong about where they were and how they found out about the World Trade Center attacks on September 11th. And that's an event we swear we will never forget, yet we're inconsistent about it. We know that people can falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit, that they can falsely remember being the victim of horrific abuse. If our memories are so malleable, even for those kinds of significant things, the idea that somehow our memories should perform differently in a situation in which we're asked by police what we were doing is frankly ridiculous. How does a person have their memory distorted? Or let me be more specific. What is the mechanism through which a person's memory becomes distorted from what they actually perceived? Is it through the power of suggestion? that as other people talk about vivid details which may or may not have occurred, the witness will then start to incorporate those details into his or her memory? Yes, the mechanism, the actual way that that happens is through what we call a source monitoring error. So the idea here is that when we're encoding details about an event, when we're actually experiencing an event, we don't store those details with a tag or a label that specifies this actually happened in the event. So when we're then discussing an event with other people, when we're watching a news report about it or being interviewed by the police and provided with additional information, that information also becomes a part of our memory report. And again, there's no tag or label specifying that it came after the event. So with a little bit of time going by, now we just recall those details. We don't recall who said what or where we learned it. So that source monitoring error is really the mechanism driving memory distortion. Given what we've heard today, that it's easy for innocent people to make mistakes in their alibis, and then for the police and jurors to be extremely harsh about those errors, what's the solution for the system? Or if we can't have a perfect solution, what can we do to structure police investigations or trials to reduce the possibility of attributing too much weight to an inconsistency in a person's alibi? Sadly, the answer to those questions is always policy changes, and they're always difficult to implement. We think that one of the best things to do would be to get police to incorporate non-temporal recall cues in police questioning. So rather than asking, where were you and what were you doing at three o'clock last Saturday, somehow approach it from a different angle, perhaps asking, were you in this vicinity, providing a location rather than a timing. Those kinds of cues we know can produce more accurate event reports. So that would be an option. Can you give me an example of when geographic cues work better than temporal ones? Sure. We did see it in, in our study that timing was not the best and instead people were pretty accurate about where they were. 
So that's one thing. And then some of the work by one of my colleagues, Charman, has shown that when people are asked location information, they're better than when they're asked timing cues. But when you combine those two, which we do tend to see in many police questions, providing the location and the time, that's bad. So somehow it has an additional negative impact. So there's clearly more work to be done around that point. And then there's a very old memory-based study from decades ago by Wagner, which he did a diary study where he encoded one particular event that had happened to him on every single day. And then he asked one of his colleagues to randomly test him and date timing information, terrible. Location information, a little better. One proposal is to use locating cues as opposed to timing cues. Another proposal that you suggest is a little trickier, I think, which is to allow suspects to have a bit more time to generate an alibi. This proposal, of course, makes perfect sense. If people are not paying attention to the mundane, you want to provide them with time to either recall out of memory or to find out, whether through using a date book or a calendar program or asking other people. But of course, there is a downside to this procedure, which you fully concede in the article, and that is that the added time will give guilty defendants time to fabricate an alibi. Do you have a sense of how the balance should be drawn here? Or is this just a problem in which we have to trade wrongful convictions with wrongful acquittals? Yeah, it's a nice idea that we would be able to somehow structure or scaffold people's reporting. So instead, when the police ask the question, they give them a few minutes to plot out and look at their phone for their calendar app, those kinds of things. But frankly, I don't think it will help. I suspect when we do that research, we will come away finding that there is a negligible effect on accuracy rates. And that negligible effect could be the difference between a wrongful conviction and not, so it's hardly negligible to a particular person. But from a policy perspective, if it's going to allow guilty parties to also have more time to generate a better lie, then it's not practical. I think we really have to look more at the idea of getting jurors and prosecutors and investigators to accept the idea that inconsistencies in memory are normal and that they aren't indicative of guilt and perhaps look for some evidence before jumping to that conclusion. The other proposal that you suggest, and this I found particularly intriguing, is to have the defense effectively demonstrate how difficult it is to recall these kinds of mundane events from the past. So for example, the defense can simply ask jurors to engage in your experiment. You ask the jurors, what were you doing three weeks ago at two o'clock in the afternoon? Then you tell them to go home and find evidence as to whether or not they were right or wrong. Wouldn't that essentially give the jurors a personal experience that would help them weight the inconsistency in an alibi correctly? Yes, in fact, that particular study has been done by some of my colleagues, Olson and Wells, and they found that participants who did generate an alibi of their own before evaluating somebody else's did rate that particular alibi as more credible than participants who didn't have that experience. So we certainly think that as an approach, it can have great benefits in helping people to understand how difficult it actually is. But it's still important to note that their credibility ratings were still low. So while it improved them, we still come back to the idea that 
well, you, there were inconsistencies in your alibi, and that means that you were guilty, because while I might have had difficulty with it, you're clearly guilty, and that's why. Are those low credibility scores just a result of confirmation bias? Absolutely. In fact, one of my colleagues has argued that as soon as you hear the word alibi, you think guilt. It's just a bad word. It has such terrible connotations. So as soon as a defendant is labeled a defendant, they're in trouble. Certainly it varies, and there is certainly some supporting evidence that can improve the likelihood of an alibi appearing accurate. And it's not family members. So a non-motivated other person with physical evidence to support it is going to look good. A family member saying he was sleeping on my couch, not going to look good. But really, any situation in which an alibi is being offered, if there is any kind of inconsistency, our research shows that participants are just incredibly skeptical. The only situation in which we've ever seen skeptability ratings change is when the rationale for why the change had occurred was because they were doing something salacious. So if a defendant actually says to the police, I was wrong about what I was doing, here's some great physical evidence that demonstrates why I was wrong. People consider that to be not very good evidence at all. If instead they say to the police, I didn't tell you what I was doing because I was having an affair with my best friend, Sure, that's now you're completely credible. And I guess the rationale there is that there's an easy to understand explanation that shows you're guilty of something else, but not this particular crime. So apart from these really unusual, narratively compelling cases, what you're saying then is that no matter what we do, a defendant with an inconsistent alibi faces a real uphill battle. Yeah, we've got some new survey data that demonstrates that it's still the case that 60% of people in the public believe that memory works like a video camera, that you can find the right event information if you look hard enough, and a further 50% believe that memory is permanent. So any change just looks really suspicious. Doesn't the solution then rest with the police? that you can train police officers and educate them about these issues, perhaps use your experiment to convince them that alibis are not all that consistent. That way, you never get to the jury where all the confirmation bias can show up. The intervention may have to be a lot earlier than where evidence scholars tend to focus. True, and I don't mean to sound so sad about the whole state of affairs, but again, our survey data with police demonstrated that they do understand that there's a difference in timing. So if they were asking about an event from a day ago, it should be more accurate than an event that happened three weeks ago. So they do fundamentally understand the issues that time can have with memory. But they still stated, in spite of having just stowed those questions, that inconsistencies in an alibi meant that the suspect was guilty. So the confirmation bias, that starts happening right then and then just has cascading effects through a trial. It doesn't mean that all of the problems are happening at the end. So I certainly think that we can improve the situation and the more DNA exonerations we have, the more it becomes clear that these are problems in the system and the more people have their own experiences of seeing those issues, then we might start seeing change. But it fundamentally happens as soon as somebody is labeled a suspect.
Let me ask you one final question. So where are you going to turn to next? Where's the next step in this research program? Well, that's an interesting question. I actually haven't decided yet. We have a few more manipulations that we'd like to try at the alibi level to see if there are differences in the kinds of evidence that people can generate, if there are differences in the way you frame those questions. But my, my main interest right now has actually moved on to that interrogation aspect and how it is that people can get slipped up, I guess, around the framing of the alibi and the evidence. Well, Darren, thanks so much for coming on the show and introducing us to this fascinating area of the psychological literature. Thanks so much. One of the goals of Excited Utterance is wider distribution and engagement with evidence scholarship, and it's wonderful to have the opportunity to do so in a cross-disciplinary way, as with Darren's article. Darren's work, while not directly about legal doctrine, clearly deals with a fundamental part of the criminal justice system, and even more importantly, it informs how we should evaluate certain types of evidence. Having psychologists like Darren scientifically inform our weighing of evidence is surely much better than the armchair psychology that has so long typified evidence law. I'm looking forward to seeing how attorneys incorporate the insights of the work of Darren and her colleagues into the trial process. After all, a simple argument asking jurors if they can recall accurately what they did on September 2nd might be all the difference in preventing a wrongful conviction. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Ben Bassoff. Production assistance was provided by Carson Smith and Aaron Parr. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.